Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dardashe. Uh, today, I'm joined by Yasmin Mjelli, the founder of Cold Collective. Yasmin, it's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm a big fan of you and your work. Um, I've been admiring it over Instagram for a while. Um, so I wanted to come out and just uh, dive right in. You know, you launched uh, Note Collective uh, and something that really caught my eyes that you work within, you know, political and feminist frameworks are very conscious of um, kind of the, the geopolitics and social components that drive uh, clothing brands. So I wanted to ask you, how did you get there and, and what, ins what inspired you to start uh, Noel Collective? Noel Collective was born a year ago. So, well, first of all, thank you so much for the admiration and the sweet words. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I started Noel Collective, I think just over a year ago now, and it was um, born in that space, that that solitude, I think, that we all um, had to experience post-pandemic or mm -hmm. post the start of the pandemic. Um, and I was, you know, with the with the way that we we couldn't do anything but really be indoors and think and be with ourselves, I I realized that I wanted to create something that I was proud of in all senses, something that was doing justice to the the complexity and the nuance of the intersections that you mentioned. Um, including, you know, environmental, social, economic, so just so many factors that I think that before I hadn't done justice in pointing out and then not just pointing out, but bringing into the work somehow. Um, so Noel was really started in an effort to, to bring that to light. And I, I wasn't an expert in any sense, but I, I'm grateful to have a community of people that are learning as I learn. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you, is it an evolution uh, from Baby Fist or is it something separate? Because I remember when I first came across you, I think it was when the, I, I'm not a Habibti, um, yeah. like, like clothing just consumed Palestine. So, <laughs> which I think was <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's correct. That's correct. Yes, it, it was an evolution. So when I had that space to really think and reflect, I had... I just was not proud of my work. I felt mm -hmm. like there were so many things that I could have been doing better. And I believe wholeheartedly that I had good intentions. I think that it was started, Baby Fists was started with the intention of starting conversations around women's bodies mm -hmm. um, and particularly around women's bodies here in Palestine. And I was so young and I just, it took so much time for me to learn that there's so much more to it all uh, that's and I started learning about these new ones and the intersections and the complexities that we're that we're probably going to be getting into today um and then I reached the point where I thankfully because of the the quarantining um which is kind of paradoxical but I was I I got to say that I'm not happy I got to hit pause and reflect and say I finally have the space now to start over from scratch and do this the way that I would be proud can you take us through some of that journey, kind of what, what lessons you learned and what things you, you came across? Because I, I remember when, you know, Baby Fist came, came to be and uh, th those, those items, they really were popular in Palestine. And so yeah. why, why do you feel like there was a journey to grow towards where no, no Collective is now? Because I, I, 
I had to learn that, for example, just taking feminism was so much more than the slogan on the t-shirt and the conversations that we were having around it. I mean, if, if it's truly feminism, it needs to be intersectional in a political sense, in an economic sense, in an environmental sense. So if I'm, I'm making a slogan on a t-shirt that I can't trace, I have mm. no idea who's made it. I have no idea where the fabric has come from. I don't even know the fabric content. That's problematic. Right. And if I'm not taking into consideration the geopolitical aspect of it, for example, how is this T-shirt moving across time and space? What is it representing locally, but also within an international context? And so I got to think about all of those things. And and when I did start pulling in all of those factors, that's where I think I started to it really shifted. Everything just changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, the more more I learn about No Collective, the more I, I see how much you work with artisans all across Palestine and, and try to bring up some of our traditions, our clothing traditions and fashion traditions. And as part of that community, so it's, it, it is building this collective within Palestine that I think traces our lineage, but also maybe takes it into the future. Yeah, that's correct. Um, another aspect that you just pointed out, I, when we were making our t-shirts, we were working with one factory in Gaza, which was beautiful, beautiful in and of itself to be working with someone that you'd never met, right? Because of the, the current circumstances, but it wasn't a collective. Mm -hmm. It wasn't including the biggest number of people that could have been involved. Um, and I didn't want to work exclusively with factories. I wanted to work with smaller family owned businesses, women's cooperatives. I mean, how could we really make this more expansive? How could we include more people, more skills, more stories, cover more geography? You know, we work with people from uh, from Gaza with, with the hand-woven fabric all the way up to Jenin, Nablus. It's pretty incredible. Um, and before we weren't doing that, and in terms of talking about the history, that's, I think, where mm. I started getting the depth that I had always been yearning for, right? When I started doing the research about textile heritage in Palestine and learning how it's just got undergone this kind of crazy metamorphosis for so many reasons, because of industrialization, globalization, occupation, it like our, what we wear and how we obtain the things that we wear looks so different from this generation to the previous generation and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And that's that, trying to understand that and trying to unravel what happened and bring it into the conversation now and try and reflect that in the clothing that we make um, is one of my favorite parts of the process. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Every, everything has that story, I think, here. And if we, we find it, we, we're usually so pleasantly surprised or horrified, depending on. What <laughs> yeah. 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 I wanted, and I wanted to ask you, what is it like running uh, No Collective in, in Palestine in the context of you know, occupation, settler colonialism and apartheid? What challenges does that bring and, and how do you confront them? Oh, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. And before I get into the challenges, I do want to say that there were so many mo moments where I wanted to give up because the challenges seem so difficult to overcome and to navigate. But because I, because I refuse to share those challenges with the audience, does that make sense? So yeah. right now, if you go to any brand and you shop, you have no idea what they have to do to make that. Like you just know that there's a shirt hanging on a rack in front of you and you're going to buy it and go home with it. And you don't know 
who came together under what circumstances to create it. And so that's the world that we've come up in. Those are the standards that we have. And it's very rare that we see the, the consumer as actually part of the process of production. So when I decided to start sharing the production process with our customers and with our audience, that's when everything changed. I, I started asking, like, why aren't you involved? I mean, if you're wearing mm -hmm. it and you're buying it, shouldn't you be involved? So that's when everything changed and it became easier. And not easier in that, like, suddenly there's no checkpoints, suddenly there's no um, shipping and, and financial issues. But I mean, in the sense that we had a, a network of support. Um, and the way that we're interacting really made it easier emotionally, spiritually. Um, so yeah, for example, today after I end this call, I'm going to make the journey to Yafa to find fabric. And I'm already nervous about it just because I know even though Yafa, if you really want to get into the car right now, ideally speaking, it's like 40 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. 45 minutes if it's a good day with traffic. But it's going to take me because I have a green ID. It's going to take me about two and a half, three hours uh, to get there because I have to, you know, go across the checkpoint and take a million different buses and uh, it's crazy. Um, so the challenge is, or for example, if I'm, I'm going tomorrow to Bethlehem and rather than drive through Jerusalem, another 35, 45 minute drive, I'm going to take the hour and a half long drive that, that the green ID, uh, drivers have to use mm -hmm. driving a, around basically the perimeter of Jerusalem to get to Bethlehem. I mean, it's crazy. So just navigating these borders is one thing. Navigating the shipping is is really difficult. I think that's one of the number one things that Palestinian creatives are trying to, to sell their things in the world, struggle with uh, fintech apartheid, like financial tech we've seen recently in the news about PayPal and so many other payment gateways and platforms that don't operate in Palestine, although they operate literally just miles away um in 48 so it's i mean there's so many challenges yeah i think just to to also contextualize it for our listeners and viewers you know israel controls all the entry points and exit points so if you want to move or you want to move goods and services it has to go through israeli uh, authority and approval and usually for palestinians in the west bank uh, you know uh, they pay double the tax that uh, Israelis do, uh, or people with Israeli IDs. So that complicates things as well. And uh, you're right, where there's, there's the tech and, and, and the financial industries are also uh, really segregating between Palestinian, non-Palestinian, uh, in terms of the access to goods and services. So it's, it's making our life just, you know, more and more difficult to access global markets. And it's, it's a nightmare. Um, so what, what is, what is your your vision for for fashion, uh, you know, and and a brand, and and what what do you want to build, and and how do you want to use it to tell these different stories? Oh, the vision is it's crazy to think now. So you know, thinking of the vision locally is one mm -hmm. thing, and then thinking of the vision globally is another thing. I mean, it's no secret that fashion is is one of the most sensitive and controversial topics right now because of the state of the climate and, and the earth. And so as I'm working, I'm trying to navigate that conversation, navigate the innovations, navigate what I think is ethically okay for us to do and what isn't. And how does that change because we're in the global south versus what's ethic, the ethical standard for, you know, of course, the big corporations that are 
responsible for where we are in the first place. And um, I know that sounds also vague, so I can get into it. But for example, locally, my vision would be to really start reviving some of our traditions that have disappeared. So for example, natural dyeing of of natural textiles, like the way we used to use pomegranates or grape leaves to naturally dye cotton and linen, that was all made, woven here in Palestine. I mean, none of that exists anymore. It's very rare that you'll find someone naturally dying. It's usually in a home setting. Um, I would love to revive that, not only because it's a part of our heritage that has been lost to time, um, occupation, globalization, but it's, it's, also the future, right? If we're talking about climate change and we're talking about mm -hmm. taking radical steps to change the course of the future, it starts looking to the past and Palestinians have like a part of that key, right? So I would love to stop buying textiles that have been dyed with chemicals somewhere in the world and I'm not sure. Um, I would love to start using naturally dyed textiles here. So locally, the vision would be to revive those parts of our heritage that are so key to the future and so key to um, keeping our heritage alive, you know, when it's under constant threat, um, expanding how many people we're working with, really growing the collective. And then on a global scale, yeah, making sure that we're doing our best to stay in a place where I feel okay, ethically speaking, because mm -hmm. of our, our, duties to the environment, our duties to the people that we work with, so on and so forth. Amazing. I'm, I, I wish you all the best of luck with it. Uh, and where can, where can people find the brands? You can shop us at nodecollective.com or follow us on Instagram at nodecollective. Definitely follow and on Instagram and, and do the, get, get some of those clothes. But definitely yeah, yeah. on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, Ismin, thank you so much for joining us and uh, all, all the power to you in, in, in this vision. And uh, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. <laughs>